City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, it's the third Wednesday of the month and we're on housing this week, of course. And um, I'm, with, um, I'm with Meg Kimber. We've got, we've got um, Karina pressing the buttons for us and, and they're doing a great job keeping us on air because we are pre-recording. Now, I think people are aware of that. I'm Kevin Healy. And it's, with Housing Day, we're going to be talking to Shane McGrath from the Housing with Aged Action Group and also to Catherine and Jack from Friends of Public Housing and they're also with Defence and Extend Public Housing. But you had a number of issues you wanted to raise, me. Yeah, Kevin, I found a uh, headline uh, this week that I think you are going to like. Look, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to be very rude here, but we, we're going to have to... I'll do this, I forgot. What? Pouring the tea. There we are. We're done now. Oh, delicious. <laughs> now, uh, what are we drinking today? We're drinking just straight jasmine today. Jasmine, oh, Chinese jasmine. My favourite. Mm. <laughs> my favourite. Um, okay, so this is the headline. Sydney apartment sells for stupid price. What do you think about that? Yes, but <laughs> I, think, I think it's stupid. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Not sure what's happening with our... New service providers. Is that the real headline, Meg? Or is that your interpretation of, of the headline? No, no, I swear to God, that's what is written here. This is news.com. I mean, it's an internet newspaper, so I don't know what I can say about it. But um, the apartment sold for, it was a small two-bedroom apartment sold for like $2 million, two point something um, dollars. So twice the average price in the area, $2.9 million, nearly $3 million for just a, a, a little flat. Um, it's in Manly, so it's near the water. But... Yeah, so that um, sort of brings us to the, con, the, you know, talking about housing prices and things. And there was a report that came out a couple, like a month or two ago. Um, it's called Housing, Taming the Elephant in the Economy. And um, it's from a few academics at a few different universities. One of them is the University of South Australia, a professor of property and housing economics there called Chris Leishman said that, um, is quoted saying, when the pandemic broke out, economists warned that prices were going to fall 20 to 25%. And what we're actually seeing is prices rising 20 to 25%. And one of the highest rises that we've seen is over the last year is in Hobart, in Tasmania, my hometown. And the smallest rise over the course of the last year has been in Melbourne. Yeah, and then as the green belt at the edge of Melbourne, of course, goes wider and wider and they take more and more yeah. land, we're seeing windfall profits, you know, development companies are buying land and overnight it gets rezoned and suddenly they make millions out of a piece of land. And ironically, farmers are making money if they get if their land gets rezoned, but over the road, if it's not in the green if it's still in the greenbelt area, uh, the farmers aren't making mm. money. But of course, um, it also reflects the fact that we are encroaching incredibly on on the environment. Mm, absolutely. So, um, housing prices have risen almost eleven times faster than wages growth over the past year. So. And you can kind of see the direct result of that in, in somewhere like Hobart, which has one of the fastest, if not the fastest, rising homeless population yeah, absolutely. of all the cities in Australia. It's just really um, difficult to find somewhere to live and because the cost of the houses means that the cost of rent is the highest it's ever been for people, especially in relation to the incomes that people make because there isn't the uh, jobs available somewhere like that. Mm. But the same thing sort of happened with rural areas as well. As you were saying, Kevin, like the pushing thing, the development further out of the city, but also because of the pandemic, people mm. wanting to live in rural areas and because also younger people wanting to buy houses have to move further out to afford that. And the usual big developers, yes. And, of course, they are happening parallel to that, and we meant, we're going to mention that with some of our guests later in yeah. the program. But... Uh, but People are running. You know, people are having real food problems. Yeah. So one of the food bombs in Sydney said they can't keep up with the the rush for people desperate yeah. for food. 
Uh, and at the same time, it was announced in the last week or so that they expect food prices to soar through the roof for various reasons in the next few months. And so mm. there's you know crisis in terms of being able to put a roof over your head, but then also feed Absolutely. yourself. Absolutely. There's a knock-on effects when, you know, uh, 60%, 70% of your income is on rent or on um, mortgage repayments. Um Apparently, this uh, report found that the number of homeowners under the age of 35 has halved since 1995, with most properties concentrated in the hands of 65-year-olds or older. Yeah, that's right. We oldies who are dominating the market. That's right. yeah. <laughs> so it's your fault, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, you can you can feel that sense of guilt, can't you? Yeah, absolutely can. <laughs> Australia is one of the most. This is, okay, this is my last fact from this report, and then um, I'm going to let you have a go on the Herald Sun. But the um, Australia is one of the most indebted developing countries, where people have higher levels of debt. I think they're implying largely because of the rental, the situation with uh, house prices and, and renters and stuff, beating the US, UK, and Canada. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, and the other side of that, is, as we, I might also raise later in the program, is that as we, um, Twitty, Twiggy is currently making 2.3 million a day, I think it was a day, 23, I can't remember, it was a massive yeah. figure, and, and the head of CSL took home $62 million last year in take-home pay. Um, $62 million. Well, CSL, of course, because they're—I presume—because they're making the the um, the, the vaccination, the the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was, of course, it's called Commonwealth Serum Laboratories because it was owned by us and it was privatised. But if it if it still owned by us, that would be money going into the public purse. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of money. When was that one sold off, Kevin? Uh, it was sold off. In the, I think the eighties somewhere, maybe early eighties. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm. Someone else asked me that yesterday, in fact, and I, I can't quite recall. But I, it was either late seventies, early eighties when it was flogged off. Um, yeah. And in fact, a, a, a bloke who was quite active with us in the in the anti freeway campaign at that time, he worked there as an engineer. He was, and he he left once it was privatised. He just resigned because he couldn't stand it. Uh, but he'd worked there for many years when it was owned by the by the Commonwealth. But and he died. So yeah, so it would have been late seventies, early eighties, I think, when it was privatised. So I'm assuming it was it was either it was either the Fraser government or the Hawke Keating government that that privatised it. Probably the Hawke Keating government, given their record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was beautiful silence, which ain't good for radio, though. I was leaving a space for you to say something. Oh, no, I just said it. That, I said what I wanted to say. That was it. <laughs> That's it. What? Okay, so show's over. Everyone can go home. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of going home, I have to actually leave early today, and I'm sorry about that. Um, oh, all right. Well, look, uh, you and we'll um, we'll just do a bit more of this. Uh, yeah. Just raving on, and then we'll go to our guests. That sounds great. All right, Meg. But look, Meg. Thanks, but I know you've you've got you've got work at the moment. But um, anyway, uh, next week um, is of course a fourth Wednesday, so we'll um, well, I, I will we'll work out somewhere between now and then what we're going to do and when we're going to when we're going to mm, record it. Sounds good. These are these are the realities of recording from home. That's right. They are. Thank you, Meg. See you next week. See you guys. Have a great show. Bye. Okay, Meg. Good luck Bye. with all you're up to. Yeah. Thanks. And Karina, in the few minutes we got left, um, and you just shut me up when you reckon time's up anyway, um, <laughs> which seems pretty smart. Interestingly enough, just in the last couple of days, after the 9-11, of course, carry on, uh, as the Americans say 9-11, we say 11-9, and thankfully Australia hasn't quite yet adopted the Americanism. It's one of the few we haven't. Uh, but they've discovered that... Um, the the new memo from the FBI that strengthens suspicions of official Saudi involvement with the hijackers, and of course, everyone knows it was the Saudi Arabians who were involved, and so all the more reason to invade Afghanistan, Iraq, um, destabilize, destabilize Libya, and all the all the terrible things that have happened in the Middle East, thanks to all that. Uh, but it's worth mentioning, as the Americans carry on this week at the 20th anniversary, that 28 years earlier, 
On this very same day, the 11th of September in 1973, of course, we saw the CIA, the Americans themselves, having destabilized the Allende government in Chile, saw the installation, they installed General Augusto Pinochet, or pinch of shit as I'd call him, um, as head of Chile. And he, of course, that led to many, many years, as you'd know, because your mother was uh, a refugee from there, um, in fact, and is now chair of 3CR. But Yeah, both my parents, actually. It's the, it's the reason why I was born here, yeah. And, of course, that led to many, many years of murders and disappearances and uh, tortures, jailings, displacements, many more victims that occurred on the other, not that I'm putting it down, because the people there were innocent victims of uh, at 9-11 in America, but nonetheless, the Americans themselves oversaw what happened there. And we also know that the Australian, um, and in fact, it was made official just at the weekend, but the Australian spy agencies of the time, ASIS in particular, mm. were involved in assisting the CIA in undermining the Allende government and undermining the Chilean economy. And ironically, of course, the CIA and maybe Pinochet helped them, who knows, um, three or four years later, worked to undermine the Whitlam government here in Australia. So it goes around, doesn't it? It goes around. I do believe uh, Whitlam was the one who who took that out. I was looking at that article uh, the other day that actually came out on the anniversary of September 11. But, yeah, I, I read that Whitlam was the one that, that took them out and he was worried about some potential backlash from that. Um, it's unsurprising to me that that Australia did play a role. Um, the bad news we, we talk about on this show a lot is often unsurprising but still disappointing. And, yeah, we still, we still suffer the consequences of these things to this day as well. Absolutely. Chile hasn't recovered from it yet. They say America hasn't quite recovered yet, but I mean, Chile hasn't either from the American, effectively American invasion of their democracy. And of course, they overthrew there uh, an elected an elected government. Uh, but it just, uh, obviously, the Americans have to intervene when the people get democracy a bit wrong. Uh, yeah, but it was, um, you know, it was a tragic period in, that, in, in Chile in that period. It was just bloody dreadful. And yet, all we hear about on the date is that America itself was attacked, but that was 28 years after its own own role there. And yet, uh, one of the most frightening things at the moment, I think, is that I mean, we sort of deal with him as a bit of a deal, but Peter Dutton, as defence minister, is so anxious to get to war, he's becoming quite frightening. And uh, he's he's currently on a tour through Asia on his way to America to pay homage to America. Mm. But he he, at the moment, is wants to tear up the the port of Darwin lease, there's a Chinese company has the port of Darwin lease and America says it's a security risk because they want, and Dutton in fact wants to tear up the lease but bring more Marines into Darwin. And while he's been on his tour in South Korea in the last day or so, he talked about the fact that we're all in this together and South Korea and Australia have a common interest in security and we all love each other. At the same time as South Korea in the last week or so has invaded 4,000, believe it or not, 4,000 police and security personnel invaded the national office of their equivalent to the ACTU here, their head union office, just to arrest the head of the union movement over there. And it uh, it's taking strong stand against unions at the moment. And yet um, Dutton's there telling us we're all in this together and we're all close mates. And, of course, he keeps pointing out everywhere he goes how terrible China is, and it's quite frightening because you know, to think that even to think you might have a war with China, given, you know, you know it's it, it just uh, absolutely terrifying, I think, <laughs> what might happen. Yeah. Uh, but yet there he is, and, and I think he's, he's extremely dangerous because he won't shut his mouth. He just keeps, just keeps running this anti-Chinese line day after day. It's unfortunate because, um, as we know, um, nothing nothing makes more profit or stimulates the economy more than war itself, and you know it's it's clear to us who that benefits, right? Uh, yeah, it is a bit clear. That's right. Yes, the merchants of death um, come out of it very well indeed. Uh, another one this week that's um, in the news, but it's interesting to look at the background to it, actually. The, the move in New South Wales and the Labor Party to get Christina Keneally into, uh, into a seat. 
from the Senate because she was going to be going to be relegated to the third spot on the Senate ticket, and therefore they regarded that as pretty well unwinnable. So they've now pushed her into a seat and pushed out the local candidate that the locals wanted, a, a Viet, young Vietnamese woman. Uh, but the interesting background to it is that, that the reason that the other woman, uh, whose name is, I think, Deborah O'Neill, isn't it? Deborah O'Neill, uh, is going to be top of the ticket. They're two right wing, O'Neill and, and Keneally. But the the push for O'Neill is, is led by the Shop Distributors Association, the very, very right wing union. Yeah. And also it's led by the AWU, another right wing union. Uh, but... They put her in there originally as top spot uh, in the previous election or a couple of elections ago because Deb O'Neill, on behalf of the SDA, was going to bolster the anti-same-sex marriage vote. So she's obviously quite homophobic or at least certainly opposes same-sex marriage. And so it's that old extreme right-wing Catholic group like the SDA and all the principles that they stand for, which are pretty bad principles as far as we're concerned, that put it there. So the background is that the woman who knocked Keneally off, and Keneally's not very good at Keneally herself, is quite right-wing, uh, was put there to fight same-sex marriage uh, one or two elections ago. So it's an interesting background of the whole thing. Definitely. This, this kind of uh, ideological stuff should never really have a place in... In policy making or, or, or unions, no matter how right wing they might be, it's not really their well, job. Well, you should have a left wing ideology. That's what you should have. You should have ideology, <laughs> but you should have a different one <laughs> to that <laughs> little lot. <laughs> but it's, yeah, they, they're all out there fighting each other at the moment. But anyway, so see what happens. But um, yeah, that's what's going. Well, that's that's happening out there. Just to so um, we're also running out of time, I think, are we? But just to finish up. As Deakin University slashed another 200 jobs last week and the uh, uh, Universities Australia revealed that 17,500 jobs have been lost in the past year in the, in the tertiary sector, uh, the, the Chancellor at Mel the Vice-Chancellor at Sydney, uh, Mark Scott, he came out this week for last attacking the government because I think the Vice-Chancellor's under Howard played a shocking role and went along with it, the commercialisation of, of the tertiary sector transferring it from a uh, an area of academia into an area of commerce and business. Yeah. Uh, and he points out, and he's, he's talking about the problems that they're facing financially, he said the federal government contributions to operating costs had fallen from 90% when he was a student to 30% today. So it's gone from 90% to 30%. And of course, under... Uh, back in the Whitlam government days, it, it was free tertiary education back then. Uh, but uh, funding, and he points out also that the funding we get from the federal government for some of the most demanding, popular and important courses that we run, including medicine, do not cover the costs of running those courses. So while the government can keep talking about the money it puts into tertiary education, in fact, it's, uh, it's cutting it dramatically. And I think we would argue clearly, Karina, that the government should be funding the whole bloody show and they shouldn't have to rely on businesses to uh, to provide funding, which then locks them into certain, I think, certain um, vested interests that, that aren't necessarily good. Definitely. And this slow destabilisation of the education industry is happening at every level. I was listening to the uh, Defence of Government Schools Dogs show on Saturday and they were talking about how uh, in Victoria we have the the least uh, state funding for public public schools as well. Um, so it's happening at every level. Yeah, well, once again, 30 Limits has cheered up people no end today, <laughs> but we'll, <laughs> we'll push on. We'll take a break now, Karina, and look, we'll come back and uh, and talk to Shane McGrath from the Housing with Age Action Group and uh, get a bit of sense into this program. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, you're listening to 3CR. After Shane, we'll also be talking to Jack and Catherine from Friends of Public Housing and Defend and Extend Public Housing. 3CR. 
Okay, back on city limits, and uh, we've got Shane McGrath from the Housing for the Age Action Group. And Shane, before I raise a couple of things, uh, have you got anything you want? I imagine at the moment Housing for the Age is uh, is working in lockdown, which must make it pretty difficult for you. Well, yeah, I'm recording from my bedroom right now, which has been my office for a little while. The, uh, you know, but but we're still providing the services that we we need to provide to people. Um, uh, I mean, I certainly have some things that I want to talk about, which might be on your list already. Uh, I guess the the first is the the failure of the Victorian government to reintroduce the eviction moratorium and other protections that uh, Victorian renters had during the lockdowns last year. Uh, is that something that you'd be interested in talking about? Well, it is. It's one of the things, obviously, to talk about. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so talk about it. Yeah. So last week, it was actually my birthday when the government announced there would not be another oh, eviction look, moratorium. Oh, look, happy birthday, Shane. Yeah. Happy birthday. Sorry we, we couldn't have had a glass, bottle of red with you, but um, we, oh, we, we oh, might oh. next time. Next next time. Yeah, we're all still here. The, um, <laughs> we could still be in lockdown next time, of course, but let's hope not. Sounds about right. The... Um, yeah, so for my birthday, the Victorian government announced there would be no further protections for renters. Um, there is a scheme to provide uh, one-off rental relief grants of $1,500 that are pretty narrowly targeted and really pretty inadequate for anyone who, who does meet the eligibility criteria. Um, just quite incredible to me that, you know, the renters in Victoria, renters on low incomes in Victoria, renters who've lost wages due to COVID and lost hours, are in a worse position now than they were last year when we had, you know, measures like the the COVID supplement to job seeker. We had job keeper payments, things like that. Uh, now the job seeker rate is down to a, a much more inadequate level, uh, closer to pre-pandemic. And the Victorian government, which last year, you know, went to some trouble to protect renters from eviction due to COVID, has just said, "Oh well, we uh, we just hope landlords will do the right thing." You know, it's, it's relevant to this, obviously, is there's been quite a scream from the the retail tenant areas uh, mm. that retail landlords, the government should make, make some sort of provision for retail landlords, give concessions to their, their retail renters, but there's been no mention at all anywhere, as you say, of giving support to residential renters. Yeah, I, I mean, the... The government seems to think that the, you know, the rental reforms that they passed that came into effect in March this year will be adequate to protect renters, but we just know for a fact that they are not. You know, VCAT has has established that it believes it is reasonable and proportionate to evict renters uh, if they've fallen into rent arrears because of COVID, uh, because they, you know, because they lost wages, because they lost income, because they can't afford to pay the rent. That those are specifically the renters that the eviction moratorium was supposed to protect. And to say now, we just hope that landlords will do the right thing, is just to guarantee that more Victorians will be evicted into the pandemic. Mm. And even after the last lockdown, when, that, when those concessions were lifted, there were reports that some landlords were suddenly trying to get all sorts of back rent off people and putting them under even more pressure than anyway. Um, earlier this year. Are you, have you seen signs of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I mean. VCAT has, you know, has said those old protections from the eviction moratorium do not apply. Um, the, the rent arrears that you accrued while you're protected from, from eviction, you are liable to pay now or you can be evicted. Um, yeah. It's bloody dreadful, isn't it? Really, and uh, and we see, and in fact, there's. I was going to raise later with the public housing people, but uh, there's been stories of late that urging urging investors to get in now to the property market because rents are rents are soaring, and it's a late great time to get in and 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 enjoy the soaring rents. So while there's no protection for renters, rents are are rising quite substantially. Well, that that can't be right because the government thinks that landlords will do the right thing. So I'm sure you must be you must have your your facts wrong there. I'm sorry. Yeah, look, now these new investor landlords will be investing so they can do the right thing by tenants. I've got no doubt about that. Yeah, uh, I mean, VCAT's published some figures about the the number of eviction applications that came through in the month after the the eviction moratorium ended. Just a massive amount, and that that's only going to increase. We're only going to see more evictions, uh, and at the same time. You know, the age is reporting that tenants can't get their bond back, that delays are effectively indefinite 
where tenants apply to get their bond back or, or to assert their rights in other ways. The, uh, the, the system is, is turning into a disaster for renters, uh, yeah. even more so than it normally is. Is this being reflected, Shane, in the, in the work you're doing, in the people contacting your office? The, uh, I mean, I guess it's varied quite a bit. Our client group tends to be people who are on age pensions. Now, that, that's not across the board. So, so for the most part, their income is less affected by things like COVID lockdown. Uh, but certainly we see lots of older workers who are still, you know, in the workforce, um, often doing sort of contract work or casual work and things like that, whose wages have been very severely affected by the lockdown. And yeah, that, that's driving a lot, of, a lot of need in the community. Yeah, another factor that's come up recently is uh, mainly out of New South Wales, but it also applies down here, uh, the demand for charity food. Apparently, they can't even queue up with the demand up in New South Wales at the moment. Well, you know, not, not, not long ago, just around the corner from where I live, the, uh, the police shut down the queue for food bank because there were too many cars and they were blocking the Westgate. Yes. Well, they closed down another one in the city last weekend at the State Library as well. I was going to raise that later. But uh, again, another food bank was closed down because they didn't have a Melbourne City Council permit, yet they've been doing it for ages. Mm. And suddenly they were, and they said they, you know, the large number of people use it every weekend, but they were closed down. So there's cruelty on top of uh, inadequacy, apparently. Yeah, it's just hopeless. Yeah. Uh, Well, the other factor on that is that. Uh, and it's it's quite disturbing in in light of the number of people who obviously are, are getting pretty desperate. Uh, that an investment bank, Bo and Joey's done a, done a survey that shows that grocery and food prices are going to increase um, higher than they have for about ten years very shortly due to factors including COVID. There's a few other factors in there, but that um, we're going to going to, in the next few months, cop massively high food prices. So this is just going to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, and I mean, you know, again, just looking to a, a federal government that just shows no interest in, uh, you know, raising unemployment benefits or other kinds of welfare above the poverty line or even to the poverty line, even to the point of waving at the poverty line, um, the, these sorts of increases are just disastrous for older people, for older renters and for, for other members of the community. Yeah. And how are you operating at the moment? I mean, how do people get in contact and how can you, how do you, can you help them stuck in lockdown, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, people can still call us up on the same phone numbers they've always been able to call us up on. Uh, so if you've got your pen and paper, that's 1300 765 178. Uh, if you're an older Victorian with a housing issue, uh, I'll give that out again in just a sec. If you want yeah, to we'll give that out again, paper. yeah. Um, you know the the phones now divert. They get sent to our to our mobile phones in our off, in our home offices on on a roster. Uh, you know you can talk to me in my bedroom while I peck away at the laptop. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah, but we're we're making do. And the outreach workers are you know they're essential workers. They they are still able to meet people, although obviously with you know some COVID safety measures in place. Yeah, good. So, oh, that's that's excellent, and and you can help them from there. Obviously, otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, I mean, a whole lot of procedures, you know, in different parts of the government have become more effective and more efficient uh, with COVID. You know, things that had to be done on paper or in person before the lockdown because nobody could be bothered to update their systems uh, now apparently can be done virtually, can be done digitally. You know. Uh, and it's much better for, for a lot of the, the ordinary renters who, who access these systems. I'm thinking about things like public housing applications and sign-ups, uh, VCAT applications and hearings, uh, a whole lot of things across the board. Yeah. And recently, we, the government's been announcing um, some new initiatives in what they're calling social and community housing, but all of it, all of the money seems to be going to what are effectively private, some not for profit, but private organisations. So it's that old story again where money that ALG is going into po- into so-called public housing, in fact, is not going into public housing. Yeah, I, I mean, any time the government's talking about funding for social housing, what they're really talking about is defunding public housing, you know, in real terms. Uh, and we've talked, yeah. we've talked about that a lot on this show. And I, we I'm have, sure and it, it just goes on and on, but they they announced a new community one just last week, and I noticed that 
that there were three or four bodies named and the Community Housing Association all saying about the need when people need this and it's a wonderful thing. But again, it's going into their, into their hands and it's not actually going to end up as public housing anyway. And some of it's going to, in fact, be, be leased out the long term to people um, virtually, virtually buying them anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, the, we've talked about this a fair bit, and I bet some of the uh, some of the other guests on the show today will have more to say about it. So I, I might leave well, it I'm there. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> but but also at the same time as at the end of the scale we're talking about, you've got advice for people, as I say, to get in now as investors. There was a headline recently about massive profits that can be made at the moment in real estate. Get in there, um, and Stockland um, is prepared to spend 500 million plus acquiring what they're calling the um, homes in the baby boomer market, which is the sort of people um, Housing with the Aged Act, deal, uh, Act deals with, of course. And also, there have been moves to invest in housing for, dis- for people with disabilities, um, money coming in through the NDIS, of course. But again, they're prepared investors, the big companies are prepared to put millions or billions, in fact, in this case, uh, into housing. So they obviously see profit in some of these areas that we see major problems in. Yeah, I, I mean, what they're talking about there is just a direct transfer of money from, from the public to the private sector, right? Like that, That's taxpayer money that, that they're re-describing as their, their private profits. Yeah. And in fact, um, Linda Reynolds, the government services minister, she she talked about the potential for this housing, this is the disability housing, to make it into a $12 billion social impact asset class. So she's actually calling it an asset class rather than a desperate need for people who need housing that, that suits their needs. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I think it's well established at this point that the... the these things fail. Like there's always someone who's got a new idea or, you know, sorry, new idea in quote marks about how to make a profit off of providing housing to people on low income or, or people with other sorts of needs. But they, these systems just don't work. What, what has worked is public housing. And what we see the government doing over and over is trying to figure out a new way to give money to the private sector to do what public housing does well. And this, it fails again and again, and they keep trying again and again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and and indeed there was a uh, there's a conference being held. In fact, today, uh, sponsored by um, a number of people in the in the in the industry, of course, and also the Financial Review called a Property Summit, and they say riding the real estate rebound, the speed and extent of Australia's housing rebound, underpinned by cheap credit and government stimulus, has surprised many. Join the property industry's most influential leaders, investors, commentators and disruptors as we dissect the issues facing the sector and identify new opportunities in real estate investment. Um, and it's today. And, of course, all the big companies are there. Meriton, Harry Trigubov, uh, Charter Hall, Mervac, Stockland, Centre Group, Dexter, you can just go on. They're, they're, they're all speaking there and all taking part. And the only one that could even be remotely considered to have any sort of social content might be the head of property for Australian super, but that doesn't count for much either. But it's yeah. just a conference of the super rich uh, property sector working out how to make more money out of it. Yeah, I mean, I probably misspoke a minute ago. You know, I, I said that these attempts to to privatise the provision of housing for low-income people had failed but like you say, it's a boom time for housing investment. It's pretty much always a boom time for housing investment in Australia. These things haven't so much failed as ways to provide low-income housing as that they've succeeded as ways to radically increase the, the profits of housing investors. Uh, and you have to say at this point that that's the intention of these, these systems and these approaches. Yeah. Well, a Liberal backbencher called Jason Felitsky, member for McKellar in New South Wales, he He's um, part of a, a, a review committee in the House of Reps looking at housing problems, and he analyzes what's gone wrong over many years. Uh, and But unfortunately, he comes up with all the wrong answers, of course. But it, that point is, is made that there's, um, there's big money to be made in it. And while he doesn't say it, what he, what he avoids saying is that people who've got property don't want the prices to go down. While we say we need affordable housing, they, if the prices do drop, they have a heart attack. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we saw that at the last federal election where policies around negative gearing reform are, are quite difficult to get up because they do affect the, you know, the the home, the value of homes owned by ordinary Australians as well as property investors, um, you know, to the extent that you can make that distinction. Um, yeah. People have their savings bound up in home prices. That's true for, for overwhelmingly many people. And indeed, um, I mean, ironically, this bloke, this this Liberal Party member of Parliament, quotes Thomas Piketty, the the socialist writer, and he says Thomas Piketty's data makes clear the major cause of inequality in the world is determined by home ownership. If you want to reduce inequality, you need to ensure widespread home ownership. Well, I think at that point he's totally misquoting Piketty, but. Uh, it's interesting that he sees the answer in somehow making home ownership available rather than what we might consider the better alternatives. I mean, I, I think there's a long history of, of sort of the capitalist side of things uh, arguing for home ownership as a way to, to you know, stabilise stabilize social conflict and invest uh, working people in the, the, the economic system. Um, yeah. He, in fact, says that uh, in, in, a, in a slightly different way than you just said it, but he says it is on the back of middle-class homeowners that liberal democracies have been built. They are the bulwark against political extremism. In other words, you lock people into mortgages and you, you reduce their political activity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's perfectly correct about that, although obviously we have different views about whether it's a good thing or not. <laughs> That's right, yes, exactly. <laughs> but... Uh, Yes, most definitely. He, um, he he's not, he's not for uh, public housing. That's for sure. But he goes on. He goes on to say, uh, everything the vested interest told us to try has only made the problem worse. Well, we know that. We turned housing. This is interesting. He said we turned housing commission into social housing. We introduced affordable housing quotas. We discounted capital gains tax. We incentivised first home buyers. We even eliminated immigration for a couple of years. But the problem only got worse. Maybe just maybe it is time to ask the usual suspects to justify their ideas. Well, at that point, we wish they would. But uh, <laughs> he does mention turning housing commission into social housing, but he doesn't suggest turning social housing back into housing commission, unfortunately. Yeah, he's got a real like the enemy of my enemy thing going on there, hasn't he? You always want to, you always want to pat him on the back. He's a bit mixed up, the poor bloke. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's him. But they're holding an inquiry at the moment, so we'll see what comes out of that. Mm. But the, the inquiry's in, I think, to see if we can make more people homeowners rather than what we might consider to be the, the ideal result. Well, yeah, and then we'll get, we'll get more initiatives like the, the first home buyers grant that just increases housing prices some more. Yes, that's right. Well, that uh, in fact, there was also a report recently that that recent grant they gave, which has run out, that suddenly new homes, uh, the new home building has has decreased dramatically since the government subsidy was cut out, which is again says something, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, on rentals, by the way, because um, we've talked to you in the last couple of years about some changes that were for the you know for the better in 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 the rental laws, are they? Are they ha what's happening over COVID in terms of that? Is, is, is some of them just gone on the wayside or are they pushing well, no, on? So the, the rental reforms that we've talked about all, all came into effect by March 29 this year. March, yeah. So they were delayed because of COVID. We had the emergency COVID laws in the, in the interim. Um, but they're all in effect now and certainly are, are better than the old regime, uh, you know, pre-2020, I guess, regime of, uh, renter, renters' rights, which was not not so impressive, but still fall pretty dramatically far short of what we would want. And and like I say, especially far short of what we need during the during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, when so many people are losing wages and income. Mm. But the the real problem is the one you we've already talked about, though this problem of uh, capitalism. Of no concessions, no concessions being made during this period for people who are going to hit the financial brick wall. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's absolutely true, but it, it's also illustrative of what's the problem all the time, you know. Last year during, you know, COVID lockdowns, we were talking to, the, to different uh, politicians and bureaucrats about the need to, to improve protections for pensioners, uh, but pensioners weren't a sexy issue because 
People were worried about workers who lost income during COVID, but pensioner poverty is just an everyday thing. It happens all the time. It's constant and expected. There were mm. no extra protections. Well, what we need is a system where, where people aren't just living in poverty and where there's a protection, you know, for any reason that you might lose income or, or, or live on a lower income. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that might be a nice note to finish on, Shane. We're, uh, right. <laughs> and we can follow it up next month again. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure by next month, nothing much will have changed, unfortunately. Yeah, probably right. All right, well, thanks very much. Let me just give out the phone yeah. number again real quick, because I said I would. Give that, yeah, give out that phone number, yeah. Yeah, it's a, if you want to get in touch, it's a 1-300-765-178. Um, thanks very much. I'll talk to you next month. All right, well, thank you, Shane, and thanks for right. your time again. Cheers. Okay. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with Age Action Group and uh, once again we've cheered listeners up no end. Uh, we're going to have a take a break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk to people from Friends of Public Housing and Extend and Defend Public Housing. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Okay, we're back on City Limits. We've got Jack and, uh, and Catherine again this week and uh, welcome to both of you. They both, um, they're both both friends of public housing and also Extend and Defend. Is it Defend and Extend or Extend and Defend? I'm not sure which order it goes in, but um, public housing. And um, welcome to the program. Uh, before I go on with something, um, anything, just anything you wanted to say particularly that's going on at the moment? Either of you? The first thing that I wanted to raise, obviously, was the response to the last lockdown to the COVID, positive COVID case in Flemington, because yep. we had a very different response to the one that's still under investigation last year that breached multiple human rights um, issues, including the right to medicine, food, fresh air, etc. The City of Melbourne um, supported the report that was released by the Victorian Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, who was looking at last year's locked, hard lockdown of the 3,000 residents that was driven by police. Um, in August 7, we know there was another positive response in Flemington. There was no police. The fantastic crew at CoHealth got in there with a pop-up testing clinic and vaccination marquee. And the family and the people that tested positive were moved into motel accommodation. So it was handled in a completely different manner um, with actually residents in the tower employed as health concierges so they were able to in various languages share health information with residents so it was a totally different outcome and from here on in the city of melbourne have said well there's got to be a um, incident control team that steps in immediately it's got to be driven from a community level without the military and police presence. So that's a positive. Mm. So so for once they, they've learned from their past mistakes, you think? I think they've learned and I think it's still before the courts and I don't think it's necessarily um, concern over people's well-being, but it's concern over litigation that drives oh, the change. Right. There's, a, there's a vested interest in there somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, okay. I thought they might have seen the light, but silly me. Um, <laughs> yes, all right. We, we were talking to Shane McGrath earlier uh, about uh, the stress people are under at the moment because the government this year hasn't given any concessions of, to people in terms of, of, of during COVID um, rental rent breaks or whatever. Um, are you seeing that as a problem um, occurring in, in the rental market? I'm just going to jump in there and say I've been listening to Shane and agree so much of what he contributed. At the moment, we are in unprecedented times in terms of income instability, um, employment instability, housing insecurity, increased domestic violence, relationship breakdowns, mental illnesses and suicides. And the government has failed to plan and put into place a public housing system that supports people during these times 
let alone during the times people have been travelling through prior. Yeah, well, even um, the ME Bank came out last week uh, with a survey that showed that more than two-thirds of tenants across the country face rental stress and lockdowns are likely to make things worse or are making things worse. And the proportion of renters spending more than two-fifths or 41% of their income on rents had jumped by eight percentage points to 68%, uh, with tenants in the capitals and regions struggling to keep up with rising rents. And it goes on, but therefore, you know, there's a real crisis out there, obviously. Absolutely, absolute crisis. And we've been living through that crisis, but now this is it. This is the tidal wave. It has hit, and the government's failed to provide that adequate housing or any safety net. If I could jump in there, um, of Catherine. Can. Yeah, Jack. The, you know, the issue is, you know, if we had only public housing, uh, you pay 25% of whatever you earn, even if it's zero. And so we've created a, a class sort of apartheid and the government's done it. It's, it's, it's added zero dollars in budget to public housing now for over 20 years in Victoria and everything's going to the private guys and you know so so when people get into trouble and are, are on new start you know on the lowest income possible the private guys don't want them you know doesn't doesn't fit their business model so what's the government's answer the government had never thought well hang on if if the private model fails what are we going to do and it, there's no answer and you know all the activity that I've just seen recently, they've been trying to say, oh, they're both the same. And I've even heard some some activists, public housing activists saying, oh, they're both the same. I think that's just just reading reading tripe, you know. They're not both the same. Once One public housing looks after currently the, the, the poor people, the disabled people, that community housing won't take. And... You know, I actually was thinking about trying to think of an example. You know, they, and community housing only take it's open apartheid. They take people who earn more. And it's like saying that's our topical point. Oh, well, we'll give AstraZeneca to all the public housing guys because it's cheap and crap. And oh, and the community housing guys, oh, they can have Pfizer because they can afford it. You know, and by the way, I think both vaccines are fairly equal. But in terms of marketing and perception. Now, imagine if you if you went out and said that, oh, we'll give all the rubbish to the public housing guys and you know, all the money to these other guys. But it's great for me to sit on sit out here and say all this. The bottom line is there's human beings involved in this, the people who are losing their jobs, the people on the waiting list. Um, you know, we, we keep hearing, oh, women sleeping in cars. Yes, exactly. Or, but there's also people surfing, couch surfing, um, people sleeping rough, and I find it absolutely despicable that the I can see the marketing coming from the community housing or industry, and even the government conflating the need of the homeless with getting more social housing. Oh, but of course, you... by inference, Jack, they do say give them the rubbish because the policy of putting the poorest people into public housing. It's changed over many years because some years ago, um, public housing catered for a whole spectrum of the population, and yes, low, you know, working working class, lower income people. But that having mm. changed um, has opened the way, of course, for these other people to move into the what they call social housing area. Yeah, it has. Yeah, so the government abdicated that. It should be public housing for every anyone who asks for it, not needs, asks for it. And let's get back to where Europe is, 35% of people are in public housing, you know? Yes, and in fact, in some countries, it's even higher over there, of course. Um, yeah. But but um, they announced just last week more than, and this is, again, our favourite paper, the Herald Sun, but more than 9,000 jobs will be created through a $1 billion community housing build for vulnerable Victorians stretching from Portland to Banala, and this is all yeah. over the state. But yeah. they say the, the scale ranges from dual units in some smaller towns to a 152 property development in Melbourne. The 44 develop, the developments are across 44 regional areas, which they name across the state. Yeah. Community Housing Limited Managing Director Steve Bevington said the not-for-profit organisation had won funding for 388 new affordable homes, including 137 in Croydon. 
Uh, and he goes on about the need. The cost of private rental has always been high, and it just keeps getting higher. And on he goes. But again, these this is um, whatever the figure I said, one billion going into the private sector effectively. Yeah. Mega bucks, and and there's no one uh, lobbying for public housing like the community housing guys are lobbying because they've got massive marketing budgets. They've got websites. They pay for um, research that's favourable for them. And I challenge these people who call themselves not-for-profits. Tell me how much you are keeping in retained earnings for asset expansion. I know they do, and tell me how much you're paying for your executives. I mean, the universities were not for profits, and I think we we're all staggered to find out the chancellors of Melbourne University what $1.9 million a year. But it's a not for profit. But don't tell me a not for profit means doesn't mean not not for profit, it means not for loss. I'm getting angry, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. You're allowed to get angry, Jack. But just in that in that one, the one billion dollar one, there are there are twenty. Another, well, apart from the one we mentioned, the um, Community Housing Limited, there are another twenty one housing organisations involved in the scheme, and most of the eighty nine projects will only include affordable housing, but four will include some private housing with long term leases. So. I'm not sure how that can be called even community or, or social housing, let alone uh, public housing. And it'll be on public land, by the way, a lot of this stuff. Uh, yes, well, there's a number of examples of that going on. Um, yeah. well, we know all over the place that happens. But, look, recently there, there was a story, an article about down at Hyatt, the, where the old CSIRO place was there. Yeah. Um, a private developer is going to build some massive development and how wonderful it was going to be. But I thought, well... This clearly being CSIRO was public land and it should therefore be public housing on that public land and it's near the station, I think, so which just makes it an ideal spot. Yeah, great for amenity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's look, I, I think we've got a locomotive that's just steaming down this privatisation road and it's got, to, it's got to be pulled up very soon. And I think we need, to, we need to, it's not just educating the public, I think we need to come out with some very direct political action. So I think that's the only thing that the government will listen to. And it has worked previously, and I think we're going to have to do it. So anyway, look out in that space. Yeah. Catherine, comment on this at this stage? I'm just, um, you know, I absolutely agree with all of that. And I think that there's got to be direct action. I mean, the, the Greens I'm aware of um, speak up in terms of saying that it's not transparent, that um, you know, pri the privatisation program is disguised as renewal and we know what it is and we know what they're doing and we know about the continual destruction and sell-off of public assets. Um, you know, you've got someone like um, Dan Andrews allocating $188.9 to expanding the Dame Phyllis Frost prison mm -hmm so that they can put in 106 more beds. Yet one in three people who are incarcerated are homeless beforehand. One in three after leaving prison are homeless. And we're talking about women. We're talking about children here. And incarceration is not the answer. And 188.9 million invested once again, these are privately owned prisons that generate income for people mm. instead of looking after basic humanitarian needs, caring for women and children. And the government just does not make public housing a priority. No, and, and of course, women, most of the women who go into into that into jail go there because of a background of poverty in some form or other, and you walk out the door and you're still poor, and so it's a vicious circle. It is a yeah. vicious circle that makes the government earn a lot of money from it. And you're right, the majority of the women that go inside have experienced tremendous trauma, domestic violence, sexual and physical assault, and... Um, one in three are already homeless in the month before they're locked up. 
um, and that's not even touching on today the Indigenous percentage. Um, so the, the money has to be allocated to public housing. We've got Lennox Street, um, the walk-ups down in Lennox Street in Richmond, um, tenants were evacuated residents because of asbestos. Now that was shut down. Um, I spoke to the people working on that site. They're removing the asbestos. But, and I'm still investigating what the final out, well, what the um, view is for that particular property, but it is not going to be putting public housing um residents back there and offering people homes in a community that they know and love it's going to be about making another buck and um handing over that land to developers and the people who living there where will they be moved out presumably during while things go on while construction takes place absolutely and they they often get moved to miles away from the place they you know where, where they've had a community and that uh, that just exacerbates the problem and if they can't get back of course then they're they're stranded out in some some area where they've had no particular connection in the past yeah and short-term rental too the actually the lockdowns from last year number of those families eventually got, that's in the towers, got moved into private housing. But I think it was on just like one or two year rentals. And then where does it go? And I think it was the inference was it was going to go to community housing businesses to run. So, you know, they would get shifted into this private industry and, and different terms and everything. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Absolutely. And just going back to the fact that because I'm living in public housing, I'm paying 25%. Yes, I've just got my, my letter saying that my rent will increase $5 per week, um, but I'm guaranteed, I'm guaranteed that I can afford my rent at 25% of my income, um, regardless of what happens to my income. Um, and also just going back to the spirit of community that lives in public housing, that thrives in public housing. Um, you know, in the last three weeks, I've come home to find boxes of produce, fresh fruit and vegetables and pantry items on my doorstep. You know, someone knocks on my door and they've made a salad and they've given it to me. Another day, someone knocks on my door and they've cooked a roast and they're sharing it with people on our floor. Now, that is just gold. That's priceless. Yeah, and absolutely, yeah. that's the support that gets us through lockdown um, and through the social isolation that everyone's experiencing. And, you know, then it also manifests as if someone needs help filling out their census form, they let me know. And they come in and we sit down and we do it together. So um, it's that sport, it's support, it's spirit of community, um, companionship, and it gives you that feeling of safety and well-being. And um, you can't find that outside public housing very rarely. No, and um, of course, there was an announcement yesterday that from next week, we pensioners are going to whoop it up because we're getting an extra $13 a fortnight, <laughs> I think it is. And they told us how wonderful that was. And I thought, well, that's just great. I'm going to, this is great for me. But um, I thought I now feel sorry for people who are really struggling. Like it was announced also yesterday that the head of um, C Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which of course has made big money out of COVID, um, his take-home pay last year, believe it or not, was $61 million. One person, what would you do with that? $61 million. And of course, if CSL, CSL had been kept in public hands and not privatised, that would be going into the public purse. And poor old Twiggy Forrest uh, was announced last week, he's only earning $2.3 million every day. <laughs> so, so I suppose we're going to be thankful to our $13 uh, fortnight increase. <laughs> <laughs> it leaves you absolutely speechless. And when you say, what would you do with all that money? Imagine what we would do if any of us had that money in our hand, where it would go and what a difference it would make. It would be phenomenal. Yeah, I, get, I think the time's coming where we just can't stand this stuff. We've really, really got to shout out and scream it out from the rooftops. It just is not right. And Australia should not go away with the rest of the world. It's, it's way worse in the US and other places. 
Yeah, I'm not sure it's worse, but it's certainly not up there with the best of them. Yeah, mm. then. Well, maybe I'm naive. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't think we're naive, but I think uh, I think we just uh, yeah we just we'd all unfortunately in capitalist societies there's always this is always this is what happens of course and uh, that's what we oh, need yeah, to change true. ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, ultimately you've got to change the system. That's right. Yeah, look, we're, we're going to have to change now too, I think, because we've run out of time. But look, thanks very much for your time again this morning and we'll do more of this next month and keep cheering people up. Okay, well done. Okay, look, uh, Catherine and Jack, thanks. Thank you very much. Catherine and Jack are both from People Public Housing and Defend and Extend Public Housing and, um, and we'll talk to them again next month. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.